Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this evening's lecture. You know, there are some characters from history who you just would not have wanted to be. <laughs> Guy Fawkes had a pretty grisly end. So did Thomas Beckett. And it wouldn't have been particularly good to have been Joan of Arc. But there are a whole cast of lesser figures who are forgotten and who you equally would not have wanted to be. And tonight I'm thinking especially of two cleaners on duty at Whitehall Palace on the 12th of January 1619. They'd been ordered to sweep the basement of James I's new banqueting house. It was only 13 years old, and although James thought it imperfect, it was in pretty regular use for masks, diplomatic receptions, plays, and the ceremonials of the Jacobean court. That day, the basement was full of scenery made of oil-painted sailcloth, which the king had wanted to keep because he wanted to reuse it at Shrovetide. And as the basement was windowless, the cleaners worked by the light of a candle. I think you can guess what's just about to happen. At this point, uh, one of the candles fell onto a pile of backcloths, igniting them. Instead of raising the alarm, the cleaners simply left the room, locked the door, and went about their business as if nothing had happened. <laughs> Half an hour later, a vast ball of fire erupted through the banqueting house floor as if from nowhere. The hall was full of timber staging for the Christmas masks, which, of course, ignited like matchwood. Soon, the flames were spreading to the adjoining buildings. At that very moment, the chief officers of the court were just around the corner from here in the city guildhall, where they were discussing uh, ways in which they could improve the architecture of London. Rushing back to Whitehall, they found a scene of chaos with looters already pilfering items from the smoke-filled royal lodgings. Seeing the banqueting house was clearly uh, beyond rescue, they concentrated on saving the rest of the palace, demolishing adjoining buildings to stop the spread of fire. James I's reaction is nowhere recorded, and for the record, nothing is ever heard of the cleaners, but what happened to them cannot have been good. James wanted the banqueting house to be rapidly rebuilt, and he assembled a commission of courtiers to take responsibility for determining the next steps. The men who served on the commission were chosen with characteristic care. First of all, had to be the most important court officers. Um, the Lord Chamberlain, uh, William Herbert, uh, the Earl of Pembroke, um, and the Lord Steward, Ludwig Stuart, Duke of Lennox. These were the two men who were responsible for the daily functioning of a ceremonial, and they would have very strong views on the functionality of the building in the future. Given the Crown's rather perilous uh, financial situation, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Sir Fulk Greville, was also to sit with the Chamberlain and the Steward. Two other courtiers were chosen for their expertise. Sir John Digby was the vice-chamberlain of the household. But much more importantly for this purpose, 
Uh, he was James's leading diplomat, and he knew more about foreign courts and diplomacy than anyone else. And lastly, there was Thomas Howard, the Earl of Arundel. Now, he didn't hold a major court post. His qualification for being on the Rebuilding Commission was as a connoisseur and as a leading member of the King's uh, efforts to rebuild London in a grander style. So this galaxy of talent was assembled because they understood the requirements of a building of state. The new banqueting house, as you see here, which was designed by Inigo Jones and completed in 1622, was in no sense a building for everyday life. It was designed specifically for regulated court ceremonial. James was extremely proud of his new Hall of State. And before it was completed, he had already commissioned the Flemish artist, Paul van Somer, to paint him standing in front of it. James, uh, uh, you see here, was shown before a window in the palace guard chamber, with the east elevation of the banqueting house seen across the court through an open casement. Van Soma must have been furnished with a drawing of the building as intended by Inigo Jones, as it's not actually shown as uh, finally completed. But the king, however, and this is the important point, is portrayed in all his majesty. He's in his coronation robes with an orb and scepter, and his intention, I think, is absolutely clear. The banqueting house was intended to be the principal theatre of his majesty. Now, in the early uh, Stuart period, there were essentially two types of royal building. Buildings of state, like the banqueting house, which fulfilled a formal role in national and court life, and buildings of necessity, the private residences of the monarch, if you like, the difference between Buckingham Palace and Sandringham House. And this distinction is explained in a letter the Lord Treasurer wrote in 1605 to the officers of the Royal Works, setting out the requirements for a new hunting lodge to be built at Ampthill in Bedfordshire. And uh, in this letter, the king describes the sort of residence he was thinking of. Um, and it says this, the king wanted to be lodged, though not in state, yet sufficient to serve for the enjoying of his pleasures of hunting and hawking by the attendance of all such necessary officers and no more as are requisite for his royal person to have. So there was to be space in this new house for the Prince of Wales to stay and the Queen, but the lodgings were, and I quote again, not to be lodgings of state, but lodgings of necessity. Space was also required for the principal officers of the court, such as the Lord Chamberlain, the King's Secretary and the Master of the Horse, but only attendance of necessity, not um, uh, uh, attendance of pleasure. This distinction between lodgings of state and necessity, in fact, existed under Henry VIII, who would visit smaller houses for hunting and pleasure with a tight-knit group of friends and attendants, known as his riding household. Such an arrangement uh, didn't appeal to Elizabeth I, but James I revived it both architecturally and institutionally. 
Already in Scotland, people had observed that he liked, and I quote, to withdraw himself from places of most access and company to places of more solitude and repast with a small retinue. In my uh, Gresham lecture on James I and the court at play, I explained how the king built new houses, uh, houses of necessity at Royston, and you see here my reconstruction of that, Newmarket and Thetford. And this is the uh, royal house in the middle of the town. This is the, effectively the A1, the Great North Road here, and here's the king's house of necessity right in the middle of it. Well, tonight I'm going to talk about Charles I and Henrietta Maria, who, no less than James I, made a distinction between residences of state and residences of necessity. Unlike his father, Charles I liked Whitehall. He liked being in London, and over the four or five month long court season in the depths of winter, Charles would reside at Whitehall continually. Yet, even then, he still managed to retain a distinction between state and necessity, keeping state at Whitehall and retreating to St James's Palace um, across the park, a few minutes walk away, um, and using it as a family residence, a house of necessity, which allowed him to escape the formality of court life. Charles and Henrietta Maria's uh, marriage had not started well, but the assassination of the king's great favourite, the Duke of Buckingham, in August 1628, seems to have cleared the way for a deep and passionate love affair between the king and the queen. Their sexual chemistry infused the court. For more than half of the 1630s, the fecund Henrietta Maria was pregnant, giving succession to a, 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 a series of um, healthy um, uh, children. Like Victoria and Albert, the royal couple became a model of idealised love and family life. The king and queen were entwined in all they did. Under Anna of Denmark, the queen's residences had been female preserves, rarely visited by James and then only briefly. But Charles, his children and his courtiers were regular visitors in Henrietta Maria's houses. The king often staying overnight at Denmark House, her London residence, despite the fact that Whitehall was very close by. By the end of 1630, uh, when a series of short but rather expensive wars against both France and Spain had come to an end, uh, a decade without war was ushered in. The Earl of Clarendon was able to look back on this period in the 1640s and say that such peace and plenty and universal tranquility for 10 years was never enjoyed by any nation. It was a golden age. In the 1630s, Henrietta Maria was in her 20s. It was her decade. She was energetic, vivacious, financially independent, and possessed of a taste refined in Europe's most fashionable court. She was adored by her husband, a man little concerned with the details of rule. Unlike his father, he was lazy and work-shy, preferring hunting plays, masks, and art to the minutiae 
of state affairs. He thrived in the company of his wife, and together they were devoted to pleasure and the arts. In her first years in England, uh, the Queen received money directly from the Exchequer for her living expenses, while uh, a permanent jointure was worked out. It took some time to assemble, and in fact, it was never formally granted. But between 1626 and 1639, Henrietta Maria was in receipt of lands and houses which yielded an annual income of some £28,000 a year. She was granted seven houses. The first and most important presented to her romantically on St Valentine's Day 1626 was her official uh, London residence, Denmark House, which you see here um, depicted in its state after the Restoration rather than before. Then came her first country houses, uh, Richmond, in February 1627, and the following month, uh, Oaklands and Nonsuch. You see uh, uh, someone's reconstruction of Oaklands here. And exactly a year later, the Queen was formally granted the Manor of Greenwich. Uh, in August um, 1629, um, she was given another large country house, Holdenby, in uh, Northamptonshire. And finally, in 1639, Charles I purchased Wimbledon Manor for her. In addition to all these houses, of course, she had extensive lodgings in all the uh, major royal houses, such as Whitehall, Hampton Court, and Tibbles. Well, when Henrietta Maria was given Greenwich Palace, which you see here, she decided to recommence work on a parkside pavilion begun by her predecessor. Here you see the finished building, the Queen's House. Anna of Denmark had commissioned Inigo Jones to build a lodge to view the hunting in Greenwich Park. And you can see here the relationship between that and the park here where the hunting was. And here's my uh, reconstruction of the plan. Um, so these are the residential, main residential buildings on the river. Here's the River Thames. Got stables and things over here. Nice gardens. And here is the Queen's House uh, overlooking the park and rather bizarrely uh, situated over the main road. Um, so the house actually act acted as a bridge so that you could cross from the private side of Greenwich uh, uh, through the house into the park side. Well, soon after um, Henrietta Maria recommenced work on this building that had been begun by her, her, um, her mother-in-law, um, Henrietta Maria seems to have commissioned Jan Vel Belkamp to paint a picture of the royal family and their friends enjoying a summer's walk in Greenwich Park. And this is the painting uh, here you see um, in the royal collection. And he added uh, figures um, to a fine landscape that had already been uh, painted by another um, Dutch uh, uh, painter. Um, and in the background of this painting, you can see the stumpy, half-built uh, um, hulk of what became the Queen's House. Um, on the um, far left, in his uh, garter ribbon, is probably the King's Groom of the Stool, James Hay, the first Earl of Carlisle, uh, who was called Camelface by the um, King's daughter, not very kindly. Um, wearing an indoor cap, he's uh, talking to Endymion Porter here, 
who's um, a fellow connoisseur and a close friend of the king. Uh, the man who's labouring up the hill, you could just about um, see here um, in blue, uh, wearing his garter ribbon, is probably um, the Earl of Pembroke, Charles I's Lord Chamberlain. And uh, there are various other people who I think we can identify there. This is a group of uh, the king's closest, uh, queens and queen's closest uh, friends. Well, we don't know what was in Henrietta Maria's mind when she ordered uh, Inigo Jones to take up where he had left off 11 years before and finish the Queen's house. But it seems as if the structure that was designed and half built um, in 1616 was indeed that one which was brought to completion in 1638 to 9. But its decoration and its function were completely reinvented by its new owner. Now, Henrietta Maria was no less um, enthusiastic a huntress than uh, Anna of Denmark. She had her own pack of hounds, uh, she had her own um, huntsman, and she even had her own personal crossbow maker. She and the Queen regularly shot deer in uh, Greenwich Park, but as work restarted on what we now know as the Queen's house, it wasn't on the park side of the building. Anna of Denmark's house had addressed the park in function and in form. But Henrietta Maria turned its aspect northwards to face the palace and the river. And this is the portrait I showed you earlier of Henrietta Maria. And you'll see actually here um, is the Queen's house um, underneath the horse. She's obviously very proud of it. Um, and in her time, it is facing the other side. It is facing... The, the gardens on the other side of this wall than facing um, the park. Um, and so uh, as work advanced, um, it was only the interiors on the north side that were completed. And by 1636, the Queen was laying out lavish gardens in front of them. And when work stopped in 1640, the northern half of the house now overlooked new pleasure gardens um, and was uh, largely complete and um, inhabitable. When you go to Greenwich today and visit the Queen's House, you get absolutely no sense of what it was like on the eve of the Civil War. It's now set austerely in manicured lawns as a sort of architectural jewel, rather like a sort of painting hanging on a wall in a gallery. It's a shrine to its architect, Inigo Jones, and to the style that much later became known as Palladianism. But the upper portions of the garden frontier, which are just white today, were originally painted with colourful grotesques, and the windows of these rooms um, contained iron balconies, um, from which uh, the Queen could look out over um, gorgeous gardens laid out in front and view uh, the river, the palace, and distantly the city of London. It was, in fact, a garden pavilion, described by one contemporary as a house of delight. Such buildings had a long pedigree, and um, since the 15th century, Greenwich had always been conceived in two parts – incorporating a secluded garden retreat known as a plaisance. Henrietta Maria was thus really reinstating a traditional form of royal residence, 
Put simply, she was creating a little house of necessity. And decorating this house became the, the Queen's principal interest in the mid-1630s. And she was frequently to be found at Greenwich uh, discussing uh, the progress of work um, with Inigo Jones, who was handsomely rewarded for his efforts. And the King and Queen drew on their international network of connoisseurs to create a series of bejeweled um, uh, interiors. In 1626, the Tuscan painter Orazio Gentileschi entered the service of Charles I. He'd previously been working for Henrietta Maria's mother, Mary de' Medici, in Paris, and he had come to uh, England with her blessing. He was quickly assimilated into the group of connoisseurs and collectors around the king as both a painter and an advisor. But he was superseded in royal favour in the early 1630s by Van Dyck and was instead absorbed into the Queen's circle. Gentileschi painted two large canvases for the Great Hall at the Queen's house and was commissioned to paint its ceiling. Like the banqueting house, the ceiling was divided up into compartments by great beams, and in these, Gentileschi painted his allegory of peace reigning over the arts. Well, while this um, ceiling survives, badly mutilated at Marlborough House, the composition is quite legible. While um, Rubens, uh, 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 the banqueting house, publicly trumpeted the triumph of the Stuart dynasty. Uh, this was, if you like, a painting of state. The iconography of Gentileschi in the Queen's house was much more intimate, representing the national cultural rebirth over which the King and Queen saw themselves uh, presiding. All 26 figures in the complex allegory, part of which you see here, are female, acknowledging the role that their sex played in the arts. Indeed, the subjects on the wall canvases were female too. The single male presence uh, in the house was the exquisite bust of the king commissioned by Henrietta Maria from Bernini and which perished in the late 17th century fire at Whitehall. No less attention was given to the first floor rooms. The um, connoisseur, Sir um, Balthazar Gerbier was enlisted to secure the services of the leading Flemish painter, Jacob Jordans, to paint 22 canvases for the withdrawing room. So this is the upper part. This bit's abandoned, not used. This is overlooking the park. This is the bit that overlooks the gardens. Here's the bedchamber, which I'm going to show you in a moment, the closet, and here is the withdrawing room. Um, and the subject in here was Cupid and Psyche very thinly disguised as the king and queen, um, and the gods surrounding them were to be easily recognisable and required ye faces of ye, woman, uh, ye women as beautiful as may be. Unlike Jordan's paintings, none of which survive, the queen's bedchamber remains largely intact and is the only early Stuart interior where today you can get a sense of the king's and queen's private 
existence. Now, it doesn't actually look like this anymore. This is a photograph of it when it was um, displayed a few years ago as a royal palace. Today, it's returned uh, to uh, be shown as a picture gallery. Uh, through the papal agent at her court, the Queen secured the services of Guido Reni to paint the central canvas in a ceiling decorated by the English Office of Works. Guido's painting, unfortunately, never reached England. But the coving, which you can see here, is a unique survival of decorative painting in an early Stuart royal interior. Royal taste was strongly for Italian Renaissance grotesque work, a form of decoration popular in England for a century or more, but brought to a state of high sophistication by designers such as Francis Klein. The Queen's House, I think, tells us more about the early Stuart court than any other surviving building except the Banqueting House. Conceived as a private pleasure pavilion and dedicated to their love of each other and the love of the arts, Henrietta Maria and Charles I used their contacts across Europe to create a luxurious jewel casket set in a gorgeous landscape. And it was only open to a tiny privileged group of close friends as epitomised by Belcamp's painting of them walking in the park. Now, the precise sequence of events that led in 1639 to Henrietta Maria purchasing Wimbledon Manor is not known. But those of you who listened to my series of Gresham lectures last year on Great Tudor and Stuart Houses may remember me introducing this house in my lecture about the Cecils. Now, it's rather hard today to imagine 16th uh, century Wimbledon. It was then one of, a, um, one of three tiny hamlets that bordered in a triangle a great plateau of high ground which uh, we now know as Wimbledon Common, but was then much larger. The Heath, as it was called, was bisected east to west by the main London to Southampton Road, a main uh, thoroughfare bypassing Wimbledon, Putney and Mort Mortlake on its way to the coast. Wimbledon was six miles from London, and from the high ground, the city was perfectly visible. Uh, I got on the train, went down there just to prove this to you, and took this photograph. Obviously, the post office tower was not there, um, but you can see from this, um, and it's not even a long lens, I just took it on my telephone, um, how you can see from the top of uh, uh, the, the hill of Wimbledon, um, you can see London extremely um, clearly. Um, but it was uh, then extremely remote, with a population of perhaps only 230 people clustered together in tiny cottages with a church set a little apart next to the rectory. And it was the rectory which was purchased by William Cecil, the future Lord Burley, in 1550. At that point, he was a rising star, only 30 years old, and wanted a rural retreat to which uh, he could go from his house near Whitehall Palace in Cannon Row. Well, the rectory is still there. Um, I've not been into it, um, sadly. It recently sold, according to Country Life, for £26 million. Um, but apparently some of the interiors do remain. But during uh, Lord Burley's uh, ownership, he added land to the rectory and extended it. Uh, but... 
with several other enormous houses uh, to his name, including Burley House and Tibbles, he granted this, his old uh, family home, to his eldest son, Thomas, in 1575. Thomas Cecil, in his turn, expanded the family land owning, uh, land ownings in Wimbledon, uh, including purchasing the neighbouring manor house uh, on the other side of the parish church. He then married an heiress in 1564, adding to the family's great wealth. Building seems to be his chief interest in life, and he must have taken a major hand in designing this new, spectacularly uh, located and elegantly planned suburban home in Wimbledon that he began in 1688 uh, on the site of the old manor house. As you can see, it was cut into the hillside, and although it's completely gone today, as you go up the road where it was, you can see the steeply falling land um, away. And to the right, if you know Wimbledon, um, there's the golf course, um, and then beyond that, there are the, the, the tennis club, the, 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 um, the, the tennis courts. Um, and the whole property was very big. It covered some 266 um, acres. Well, James I was a regular visitor to Thomas Cecil in Wimbledon, but after Cecil's death, the house um, passed to his son, General, General Sir Edward Cecil, a soldier who spent much of his career abroad. He certainly used the house. In fact, he took his title from it, Viscount Wimbledon, and he built a chapel on the side of the church which still survives. And there's his um, tomb in the church. The rest of the church is rebuilt in the 19th century, but this is um, Cecil's uh, tomb. Um, we don't know much about his life um, at Wimbledon Manor, but we do know that at one point there was an explosion in the kitchens when a maid opened a barrel of gunpowder, thinking it was a barrel of soap. I suppose he was a soldier, and she dropped in a candle. Must have been a nasty moment. Um, but other, other than repairing what damage this caused, it seems he made few, if any, architectural changes to the house. A foreign tourist who visited it in 1629 raved about its beauty, uh, and especially the gardens, the likes of which he thought were rarely found in England. And when uh, Edward died without a male heir, the estate was put up for sale. Well, there's no evidence that Charles and Henrietta Maria were visitors to this house during the 1630s, or even that they were looking for another residence. And with Greenwich, Oaklands, Richmond, Nonsuch, it has to be wondered why the Queen wanted another house. Well, I shall answer that question in a few minutes. But first, we shall just note that the king bought it for her uh, for the colossal sum of £16,789. Well, Inigo Jones, the queen's personal architect, was instructed to draw up plans for altering the Elizabethan house to the queen's specification. None of these plans survive, but we have just one drawing uh, in Jones's hand for Wimbledon, which is inscribed for freezes at Wimbledon. And this sketch probably shows some uh, cornicing for one of the new rooms. 
But I can't emphasize strongly enough that this was not just an interior redecoration job. Because we know that in December 1638, a brick field was leased by the king and a brick-making contractor fired 124,000 bricks for making alterations to the house. This, in fact, was a major project designed by Inigo Jones for the Queen that, because it's been completely demolished, has never gained any prominence. However, we can reconstruct exactly what Henrietta Maria commissioned from Jones, and by analysing the house, we can reveal what she was trying to do. Well, the starting point is um, a remarkably detailed survey of Thomas Cecil's house, found in a book of drawings assembled by the royal surveyor, John Thorpe. Unfortunately, the circumstances or the date of this plan can't be convincingly stated, but it's uh, clear from the annotations that this was a survey of the existing building, and as the book is dated 1596, the survey must have been taken before that. And you can see uh, the manor we see here wasn't um, a particularly big one. Uh, it was only one room deep. Uh, there was a, a, a great hall. This eastern arm here um, contained a, a chapel, stairs up to a long gallery that um, went the whole distance uh, of this wing. And in this wing here were the um, family um, quarters. Um, and uh, on this side of the house, this is the view looking down um, towards London, and on this side of the house were the spectacular gardens. And we know about these gardens because the house was surveyed again in 1609. And here you see Robert Smithson's uh, survey of the manor. This is what we were looking at earlier, the uh, U-shaped house. Um, and uh, you can see the extensive um, gardens in a series of terraces climbing up the hill uh, to the um, heathland at the back. Um, as far as the layout of the rooms uh, in the house are concerned, the two plans essentially agree. But what Smithson does is he includes on this side here uh, the kitchens, which uh, Thorpe didn't include, perhaps because they rather spoilt the symmetry of his rather elegant plan. But what these two Jacobean plans give us are the plan of the house during the occupation by Thomas Cecil. And um, if we assume that his son Edward didn't make any significant alterations to the house, and there's no evidence that he did, these plans show Wimbledon Manor in the state in which they were purchased by Henrietta Maria in 1639. Now, at this point, I want to show you a third plan of Wimbledon. And this one is in the hand of Nicholas Hawksmoor, Wren's chief draftsman, and, of course, an accomplished architect in his own right. Unfortunately, it's not dated, but um, my colleagues who have studied Hawksmoor's drawing style believe that it was done in the early 1690s. And as you can see, the plan of the Elizabethan house um, is uh, perfectly recognisable. But in addition, there is a new um, extension here on the western side. Perhaps this is the addition built by Inigo Jones. But to be absolutely sure it wasn't built later, 
we need to quickly check what happened to the house between the execution of Charles I in 1649 and the early 1690s. Well, during the Commonwealth and Protectorate, uh, Wimbledon Manor belonged to one of the most senior parliamentarian generals, uh, John Lambert. For eight years, he and his family enjoyed living at Wimbledon. They tended the garden. They furnished the house with pictures bought from the royal sales. When he bought the house in 1652, it was extremely fashionable and had only just been renovated by Inigo Jones. And so there's no evidence to suggest that he needed to make any alterations to the former royal palace. Although his interest in the gardens suggests that he may have made some improvements there. Well, at the Restoration, uh, Wimbledon Manor was returned to Henrietta Maria, but she felt it had been defiled by the presence of John Lambert, and she sold it for £10,000 to George Digby, the second Earl of Bristol. He took possession of it in 1661. He found it rather run down and had to spend some money on repairing the house and the garden to make them habitable. His political career was catastrophic. Described by Professor Hutton, Gresham College's new professor of divinity, as remorselessly, sorry, I'll say that again, remorselessly self-destructive. There's no suggestion that uh, Digby could have ever made significant alterations to the house. He stopped living there in the um, 1670s, and on his death in 1677, it was sold to the Earl of Danby. Thomas uh, uh, Osborne, Earl of Danby, later the first Duke of Leeds, was a Yorkshireman uh, in need of a base close to London. He liked the house, and he particularly liked its gardens, and he started to entertain important guests there. But like uh, the political career of his predecessor, the Earl of Bristol, Danby uh, ended up in deep water, impeached, and in the Tower of London. But unlike Bristol, he was rehabilitated and in 1690 became William III's chief minister and Duke of Leeds. And I would suggest it was at this moment of rehabilitation, with his star rapidly rising again, that he commissioned Nicholas Hawksmoor, England's, by then, most fashionable country house architect, to survey Wimbledon in preparation for a remodelling. So, if I'm right, and neither Lambert, Digby or Osborne made any significant changes to Wimbledon between 1649 and 1690, Hawksmoor's plan shows the alterations made to Wimbledon Manor by Inigo Jones. And in fact, this can be proved by a very detailed survey taken of the house in 1649 by the parliamentary surveyors who describe in detail the house exactly as shown on Hawksmoor's plan. So, if we put the drawings uh, together, we can consider this as a lost work of Inigo Jones. He saw the re oversaw the remodelling of the house, receiving a fee of £580 and a special bounty from the Queen for his efforts. The um, East Wing had, um, that's this wing here, had been uh, designed in tandem with a sunken garden 
that's this here, and um, an undercroft. Um, can you see it's sort of, um, there's some dots here. These are pillars supporting a terrace above, and the, underneath that there's an undercroft which contained a um, shell grotto. And uh, what uh, Jones does is he incorporates this into the house and uh, converts this wing here um, into a new uh, chapel and a large marble parlour uh, giving out uh, onto this terrace overlooking the garden. The great first floor rooms remained much as they were, but on the west side here, uh, Cecil's rooms were completely remodelled. Here, the king and queen had new bedchambers and a shared withdrawing room. Each bedchamber had its own ensuite bathroom with tiled floors, lead-lined baths and hot and cold running water. Nearby was a linen room. Adjacent was also a highly ornamented study that had apparently been Cecil's with a Dutch stove and various secure cupboards. Although the gardens, which you see here, were already the fame of the place, the Queen um, commissioned the uh, French uh, garden designer André Mollet to reconstruct them in a contemporary fashion. Uh, the Tudor gardens, actually I'll just go back one, um, were, uh, as you can see here, um, asymmetrical. Uh, they were a sort of assemblage of walled compartments containing ponds, a banqueting house, and various monuments. But what Molly did was uh, impose an order um, and symmetry uh, on the gardens with a strong um, central um, axis here. And the sunken garden on the east side, which you see in this view here, became uh, an elegant parterre uh, with an orangery. Um, and you can see here the, I think you can see the arched uh, um, supports here for the terrace that Inigo Jones creates with the grotto, the shell grotto um, underneath. Um, the principal uh, uh, rooms were uh, joined to the gardens by a series of bridges, um, which linked the gardens to the um, main part of the uh, house. And uh, in the, the sunken area below that, there were lawns, a fountain, um, and an aviary. Um, so here is a, a, an, an engraving uh, a, a bit earlier than um, the uh, uh, engravings I've just been showing you of Henrietta Maria and her three eldest um, children. And what you can see is she's standing on a terrace uh, with a balustrade, and below uh, that is a, um, a garden uh, with uh, showing a parterre. And it must have been uh, a view much like this that uh, the Queen and her children would have seen at Wimbledon Manor in 1640. But Henrietta Maria's most um, remarkable um, addition to Wimbledon Manor was Inigo Jones's cruciform stone gallery, this structure you can see here in the top right corner. The southern arm, um, 10 feet wide, with many compendious sentences painted on the walls, led to a bridge across into the garden. So actually, I'm just going to go back a couple just so you can see where that comes out. So that leads to there. That's the arm of that leads to there. OK, so you walked out into the garden at that point. Um, and the north arm led to an alcove containing a crimson bed with cloth of silver and gold 
with three matching chairs, six matching stools, and a carpet. The east-west arm here ended in a balcony at this point, um, and at the crossing here was a stove. How exactly this crossing worked isn't really known, but I think you can see from Hawksmoor's survey, um, there were pillars here which must have supported some sort of um, structure above, I don't know, a, a dome, a vault um, of some description. This is a completely unique layout and a unique composition, a royal bedchamber that opened directly onto a garden. And at the garden door here, there was a room that was described as the Lord's Chamber, presumably a room where someone could be stationed to control access to the Queen's private bedchamber. Well, this cross gallery contained what was almost certainly the first bed alcove in England. This um, alcove was a fashionable new feature from French aristocratic houses. At the, end, at the beginning of the 17th century, French bedchambers were large rooms containing a bed, often doubling as a reception room. But in the late 1620s, bedchambers began to be used for more private intercourse. And an intimate space was created in the bedchamber called the ruelle. This was simply an area between the side of the bed and the wall, a place where the owner could receive specially favoured friends. And the ruelle gradually became um, an architecturally um, defined space. And here you see um, what happened in England, the um, architecturally designed uh, uh, bed alcove, with the cross gallery, the balcony, the gallery going out here, uh, the Lord's Chamber. So what was happening in France was um, uh, also happening here at Wimbledon. And the first recorded bed alcove in Paris was at the demolished Hotel de Rambouillet in the 1630s. Uh, by the 1640s, they had become reasonably common. And so for Henrietta Maria to build an alcove at Wimbledon in 1639-40 showed her absolutely in tune with the ultimate in contemporary Parisian fashion. And here you see a very extravagant bed alcove from the later 17th century and uh, the only surviving 17th century bed alcove in England um, at Poes Castle. And these bed alcoves were architectural features associated with privacy and intimacy. And it wasn't only the extraordinary architecture of Wimbledon that suggests that this was a very particular private house of necessity, because we have some evidence as to how it was furnished. In 1649, after the execution of Charles I, a series of inventories were taken of the contents of the royal houses. Many things had been taken from Wimbledon by the time the surveyors arrived, but 24 paintings remained, and these tell us, I think, quite a lot about the house. Hanging on the walls were two pieces of needlework, four allegorical works, five still lives, a portrait, and 12 religious paintings, of which six had the Blessed Virgin as its main subject. If you compare these paintings with those listed in the Queen's House at Greenwich, which were all allegorical paintings, this looks like a very personal collection with a strong focus on the Queen's Catholic faith and a rich 
uh, selection of Marian images. The single portrait there was of the Queen's father, King Henry IV of France. Moreover, amongst the paintings was one very recently commissioned from Sir Anthony van Dyck. And this was my favourite painting of the whole 17th century, Cupid and Psyche, one of van Dyck's most beautiful paintings charged uh, with erotic power. Psyche embodied beauty and Cupid desire. And together, of course, they made up Plato's uh, definition of love, love being desire aroused by beauty. Henrietta Maria was seized by the symbolism of the myth and commissioned many paintings of it, including the ones I've already mentioned at the Queen's house. That this big painting, it's a really big painting, it's six foot square, and the figures are half life, life size. The fact that it should be taken to Wimbledon emphasises the Queen's focus on the house being a place of erotic and platonic love. And Wimbledon was immensely private. It was very remote. This is John uh, Aubrey's sketch of um, Wimbledon in the 1670s. And you can see the heath and the uh, area around it. There's nothing around it. It's a, a very, very remote um, place. The house contained very few lodgings. There was a room for a maid. There was a pallet chamber for ladies on duty. But otherwise, there were only rooms for the Queen's two closest friends. Her childhood nurse, Françoise de Montbaudiac, and Susan Fielding, the Countess of Denby, um, who was the Queen's first lady of the bedchamber. And on the first floor, there was a nursery suggesting that the Queen intended to bring her children to the house. So, ladies and gentlemen, this all adds up to a unique royal residence. Uh, a house without a single named traditional room of state, no division between outer and inner lodgings, a place filled with private paintings, constricted of access in a remote location. This was a private hideaway, indeed a royal love nest, a house of necessity where the king and queen could reside in complete privacy and enjoy uninterrupted intimacy. The bathrooms, shared with drawing room, alcove bedroom, direct access to the gardens, are all things impossible, even at the newly reconstructed Queen's House. Wimbledon Manor was the ultimate expression of the King's and Queen's love for each other. But very briefly, to return to our starting point, because I think our understanding now of Wimbledon Manor helps us understand Inigo Jones and the banqueting house. Of course, the Stuart monarchs needed great rooms of state for set-piece uh, court ceremonial, but the houses of necessity were the places where they preferred to live, and their architect, Inigo Jones, in fact, spent much more time designing and supervising these private, intimate residences than the great buildings of state. And this means, I think, that we can look at him in a fresh light, installing the latest in French luxury bedrooms and bathrooms for Henrietta Maria, and not just the proper and correct bringer of architectural classicism to England. Thank you.
Well, thank you, Professor Thurley, for a, a wonderful lecture. Um, we don't have much online. There is one question um, about the foreign visitor who visited Wimbledon House and admired it so. Um, just a factual question. Do we know who the foreign visitor was that... Uh, yes, we do. He kept a, um, uh, he kept a diary. Um, he came from the, the, the Netherlands and um, uh, was very keen, I think, to see all the sort of great, um, the great sights <clears throat> of, of London. And you know, Wimbledon was a curiosity, I think, and um, uh, he wanted to visit that. Are there any questions from the in-person audience? I'm seeing a hand up there. Marian? Thank you very much, Dr. Thurley, for a most interesting lecture. Um, apart from Nico Jones' architectural talents, do we know why it is that, in fact, he became a royal architect? You referred at the beginning to the uh, precarious finances of the, uh, of the king. Yeah. So was it that, in fact, that uh, his fees, in fact, were not so expensive? Or <laughs> I, I wasn't clear, actually, how it is yeah. that um, he came to be selected... Presumably there are other architects that uh, would have been uh, pretty strong contenders to occupy royal favours. Mm. Well, it's a, it's a very a good and very interesting question because today we have a very sort of clear conception of what an architect is. Someone who you um, commission to build a building, he's trained in, in, in drawing and understanding the functionality and the construction and the um, engineering of building. But in the 17th century, uh, the, the divisions between the various branches of the arts and sciences were extremely um, fluid. And um, if you had asked uh, Christopher Wren who he was, uh, you know, he was just as much a mathematician or a, 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 a professor of geometry, a, or astronomer, uh, an architect. They didn't see the distinctions between those. And nor did, I think, Inigo Jones really see the distinctions so strongly between his work as a designer of stage scenery, um, a, a painter. Uh, he started off as a, as a, as a carpenter, and um, famously, uh, because he clearly was um, a bit of a prima donna, um, he was uh, described by Ben Johnson as a joiner with whom no man will join. Um, and so um, architecture was just one of his many talents, and you only need to look at the extraordinary designs for masks, the ingenuity with which he designed incredibly complex stage machinery to realise that you're dealing with a sort of polymath figure here, um, who's, one of whose branches was architecture. And he, he, he probably did start his career in the um, household of, um, of Anne of Denmark, um, moving to be the king's uh, chief architect. And really, he just crushed all before him. And the man who designed the banqueting house that burnt down, um, uh, um, Robert Stickles, um, you know, was actually really, was probably really quite a useless architect. Um, and James, um, James I was really unhappy with the design of the place. Um, so I think he was head and shoulders, really, above um, anyone else at court. There's a bit of interest in the bed alcoves, and the question is, did the bed alcoves have curtains which came across and completely shut the bed off from the rest of the room? Well, they, no, they didn't, actually. That's, that's an interesting question. The, 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 the alcove was kind of like an architectural setting for the bed. The, the, the bed itself had curtains. Um, in the uh, later um, 17th century, 
Um, they were designed with uh, carved wooden curtains, the ones that, that Charles II had. But in this early period, these alcoves were um, associated very strongly with privacy, intimacy. Being invited into the alcove was kind of the ultimate um, uh, um, accolade, really. You got in the, your most, in, the most intimate place you could get to. Any other questions in the room? I'm seeing a few hands up now. Um, just, just a second. No, where are you going, Miriam? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, we'll come back down in a second. I, I visited many years ago the church of St. Bennet, Paul's Wharf, and I believe, I'm going back probably about 25 years now, I believe the vicar said, and you go, Jones is buried there. Is that correct, sir? Well, this is one of the excellent moments in a Gresham um, lecture where the lecturer has absolutely no idea, but someone in the audience probably does know whether he's buried there or not. Yes, is, is there someone there confirming or denying it? <laughs> yes. Okay. There's someone in the audience who knows and can confirm that. Thank you. <laughs> there's, a qu there's a question out front, and then we'll go to the two here if we can. Yes, given the upheavals of the time, uh, it seems strange that the, there doesn't seem to be any provision for a garrison. And the house itself doesn't seem to be built with any kind of defence in mind. Uh, was this an issue in Inigo Jones's mind at all? Well, of course, we're, we're all crippled with the blight of hindsight. I mean, in the 1530s, uh, in 1630s, as I said, it was a golden age. It was peace. It was prosperity. It looked as if... The king had um, resolved his financial uh, difficulties with ship money and all the various sort of uh, dodges and dives that he was uh, putting in place. I mean, Wimbledon is the ultimate expression of a, uh, of a house where there was, no, uh, there was no need, there was no conception that you'd ever need to def defend it from anybody. So, um, absolutely not. Um, it, was, uh, it was designed in, in a period where it was inconceivable that there could be a civil war in England, completely inconceivable. So I think this, there's a question in the third row, yes. Um, thank you. Um, two points very, very quickly. On a previous picture, there was uh, some, a place on the skyline with some writing as if it was a viewpoint, you could see something in the distance. This one? No, back, back again. Um, we're going back through alcoves, my drawing. The out there, there. Ah, oh, here. And on the, in the distance, on the right hand there. Harrow on the hill. Ah, right, lovely, <laughs> thank you. And, and secondly, what happened to Wimbledon Manor? Ah, yes, well, um, it was, uh, it, like many um, 16th, 17th century houses, um, it, it just became very unfashionable, while Wimbledon became extremely fashionable. And um, by the um, early 18th century, um, everybody had cottoned on to the fact it was a fabulous place to live because it was six miles from the city, um, it was up high, lovely views, um, and um, so the site was bought, the house was demolished, and a series of other houses were built, and there's actually now a housing estate um, on, on the site. But there were a series of very grand 18th century houses, um, in fact, one belonging to the Duchess of Marlborough, which were on this site subsequently. Question there. Uh, my question is, um, well, rather, I'm, I'm quite interested in, in the 1640 reference to um, a French design sort of coming in from Jones. We know that it, there was this huge Italian 
backdrop to his work, but um, I've never seen anything which suggests that it was French. So do you think that came came from the Queen? or? Um... Mm. Well, um, the short answer is yes, it absolutely did come from the Queen. The Queen re retained very, um, very close connections with, with France and French designers and French architects, and we absolutely know that... Um, uh, in Somerset House, and we can we can prove it um, that Jones was um, given uh, French pattern books um, to uh, uh, to inspire his um, his designs. And I mean, I do think it is um, it is fascinating that uh, he should build this uh, this bed alcove here at a point when it is the absolute height of fashion um, in 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 France. She her her, her contacts. Must have been extremely good. I, I suspect she was sent drawings. We don't have no proof of this. But Inigo Jones had not been to France. So, he, so the, the, the design must have been conveyed to him through, um, through drawings, prints, or um, uh, uh, other means for him to, do, to put something in which the Queen herself wouldn't have seen either. I mean, she, she wouldn't have seen it. So she heard about this, and she wanted to introduce the, the height of you know, French taste. I'm afraid we're probably going to have to draw it to a close there. Um, thank you very much, Pro Professor Thurley, for your talk, and thank you to our audience for your close attention, both those of you who joined us today and those online. And please join me in thanking the professor. Thank you.